Section 41 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Case Studies, Chapter 8, Part 1. Total Body Irradiation Problems When Treatment and Research Are Intertwined In the fall of 1971, a public controversy erupted about the ethics of a research project at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, funded for more than a decade by the Department of Defense, DOD. In this research, the subjects were cancer patients who underwent external total body irradiation, TBI. The DOD was funding post-irradiation research on the biological effects of this type of exposure to radiation. Critics of the research charged that the physician investigators were exposing unknowing patients to potentially lethal doses of TBI not to treat their cancer, but to collect data on the effects of nuclear war for the military, and that numerous patients had died or seriously suffered from the radiation. Defenders asserted that the TBI was reasonable medical treatment for people with incurable cancer, and that this treatment was performed in accordance with contemporary professional ethics. Over the next four months, the research was reviewed favorably by ad hoc committees of physicians appointed by the American College of Radiology, ACR, the preeminent professional organization of radiologists, and by University of Cincinnati officials, but critically by an ad hoc committee of junior non-medical faculty members at the university. Following these reports, the university president rejected further Defense Department funding for the post-treatment data collection program, and the use of TBI was suspended. When news reports about human radiation experiments appeared in late 1993, journalists and investigators again focused on this Cincinnati project, Critics charged that the reviews commissioned by the university and the ACR were biased and had been whitewashes. Supporters countered that the Cincinnati research had been conducted in the open, had been thoroughly and favorably reviewed by the medical community, and was old news. In addition, patients were identified publicly for the first time leading a number of their family members to file a lawsuit against the university, the physicians, and other parties in federal court. The family members also formed an advocacy group called the Cincinnati Families of Radiation Victims Organization. The University of Cincinnati was only the last in a line of institutions that received funds to provide data to the government on the effects of total body irradiation on humans. In this chapter, we review 30 years of research supported by the Manhattan Project, the Department of Defense, and the AEC, aimed at gathering data on the effects of radiation on hospitalized patients who were medically exposed to total body irradiation. 
much of the record is incomplete, and some of it is contradictory. We cannot and do not resolve all the inconsistencies and uncertainties in the record. We do, however, focus on the ethical issues that emerged in this research, some of which are still with us today. The history of TBI research is important to the Committee for several reasons. First, in the other case studies conducted by the Committee, there was never any expectation or any claim that subjects, even if they were patients, would benefit medically from their being involved in experiments. By contrast, in the TBI research, the TBI itself was recommended as treatment for incurable cancer, for which the expectation of benefit was low, although possible. Chemotherapy, which would be considered standard today, was not well established until the mid to late 1960s. The post-radiation effects studies, sponsored by the DOD, however, were not intended to benefit the patients. As we noted in Chapter 4, the presence of an intent to benefit, if that intent is both genuine and reasonable, alters the ethics of the situation. An intent to benefit the patient subject does not, however, ensure that an experiment is ethically acceptable. Many perplexing questions about the ethics of research involving human subjects that we face today occur at the bedside with patient subjects who may or may not benefit medically by their participation. The TBI story thus foreshadows important issues we discuss in Part 3 of this report, when we focus on contemporary research involving human subjects, much of which involves patient subjects and the prospect of medical benefit. The core of the ethical problem is straightforward. Whenever the treatment of a patient is intertwined with the conduct of research, the potential emerges for a conflict between the interests of science and the interests of the patient. The patient may, for example, be exposed to additional risk or discomfort as a consequence. At the same time, for some patients, participation in research may offer the only chance or the best chance of improving their medical condition. The second reason the history of TBI research is important to the committee is that although the research was conducted on cancer patients, the government's interest in the research was not to advance the treatment of cancer, but to find answers to problems facing the military in the development and use of atomic weapons and nuclear-powered aircraft. It is this disparity that raised questions, both in 1971 and today, about the motivations behind treatment of these patient subjects with TBI. Whether it matters morally that the government pursued its interests in the effects of TBI on patient subjects depends in large measure on whether the government's objectives in supporting this research inappropriately compromised the medical care the patient subjects received. We have just noted that the conjoining of research with medical care necessarily creates a potential for conflict between the interests of the research and the interests of the patient. This is true even where the objective of the research is to find a treatment for the condition from which the patient suffers. A central issue in the case of the TBI research 
is whether this conflict was exacerbated by the nature of the gap between the interests of the patient and the objectives of the research. A complicating feature of the TBI story is that the DOD did not pay directly for the patients to be administered TBI. The funding by these agencies was restricted to the costs associated with the physiological and psychological measurements taken in conjunction with the TBI, rather than the costs of the TBI itself. The committee was also struck with how well the history of TBI research illustrates two very contemporary problems, how to draw boundaries between medical care and medical research, and how to draw boundaries between research with patient subjects that is therapeutic and research that is non-therapeutic. Was the administration of TBI always an instance of medical research? Was it ever standard care, or was it sometimes administered as a departure from standard care outside of research? When TBI was administered in the context of research, was there a basis for believing that there was a reasonable prospect that patients could benefit, or was it the kind of research from which patients could not benefit medically? Because of conflicting and incomplete evidence, these were questions that we could not always answer, but that guided our inquiry. The committee began our review by seeking to track down TBI research identified in a retrospective study of TBI exposures conducted in the mid-1960s by the Oak Ridge Associated Universities on behalf of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, which collected records on more than 2,000 TBI exposures on both radiosensitive and radioresistant cancers from 45 U.S. and Canadian institutions. The committee then focused on approximately 20 research studies that were published between 1940 and 1974 on the use of TBI in the United States. Nine of these 20 studies involved at least some patients with radio-resistant cancers. Eight of the nine institutions that conducted the studies received funding from either the Manhattan Project or the DOD. The Atomic Energy Commission sponsored one of the studies involving radiosensitive cancers at the Oak Ridge Institute of Nuclear Studies, ORINS. In addition, the committee found only one instance in which non-government-funded TBI research involved patients with radioresistant cancers. In this chapter, we begin with a definition of TBI, including a discussion of the then-contemporary distinction between the use of TBI to treat radiosensitive and radioresistant tumors. The distinction is important to what follows, because patients with radiosensitive cancers, for which TBI was considered most promising medically, were less useful subjects for obtaining the type of information that the military sought, information on the acute effects of radiation on healthy soldiers or citizens during the course of atomic warfare-related activities. In these patients, it would be less clear whether signs such as nausea, vomiting, or other acute effects were due to rapid destruction of cancer cells by the radiation or due to the radiation acting on normal tissue such as normal blood cells. Similarly, 
patients with radiosensitive cancers were less useful for research intended to find biological measures of radiation doses, biological dosimeters, because this research depended on measuring various cell products in the blood or urine that could also be released by tumor cells that were destroyed. Patients with radio-resistant tumors were more desirable because it was more likely that the effects seen were related to radiation effects on normal tissue rather than rapid destruction of their tumor cells. Following a discussion of TBI itself, we turn to a chronological history of government sponsorship of research related to the effects of TBI with radio-resistant tumors. This research began during the Manhattan Project. In 1949 and 1950, as we next discuss, DOD and AEC experts and officials met to consider the need for further BMI human experiments in order to gain information needed in the development of the nuclear-powered airplane. When the decision was made not to proceed with human experiments involving healthy subjects, the military began to fund research on the effects of TBI on patients undergoing treatment for cancer. As we discuss, this program began in 1950 at the M.D. Anderson Hospital for Cancer Research in Houston, and continued through the end of the Cincinnati research in the early 1970s. We conclude our review with a discussion of the AEC-funded TBI research conducted at Oak Ridge between 1957 and 1974, which focused on patients with radiosensitive cancers. What is TBI? Medically administered total body irradiation also known as whole-body radiation, involves the use of external radiation sources that produce penetrating rays of energy to deliver a relatively uniform amount of radiation to the entire body. Total-body irradiation was used as a medical treatment long before the 1944-1974 experiments, and it continues to be used today. Soon after doctors began to experiment with radiation, they recognized that radiation had different effects on different types of cancers. They thus began to distinguish between radiosensitive cancers, which generally responded to the radiation treatment, and radio-resistant cancers, which most often did not respond. By the 1940s, TBI was recognized as an acceptable treatment for certain radiosensitive cancers that are widely disseminated throughout the body, such as leukemia and lymphoma, a cancer whose origin is in the lymphoid tissue. By the late 1950s, TBI was also being used to assist in conjunction with research on bone marrow transplantations for radiosensitive cancers. During this period, TBI was also explored as a possible palliative treatment, providing relief but not cure for disseminated radio-resistant cancers, such as carcinomas of the breast, lung, colon, and other organs. Carcinoma is a cancer that originates from the cells lining these organs. However, TBI alone did not prove to be of value in treating these cancers, because without support measures to maintain bone marrow function, 
the doses needed to significantly shrink the tumors were potentially lethal to the patient. In the 1950s, there were few effective methods for treating radio-resistant cancers. Chemotherapy was just being developed. It was risky to use and only marginally effective. With no better alternatives, interest in TBI continued. In addition, the development in the 1950s of high-energy sources of radiation, cobalt-60, cesium-137, and megavolt X-ray sources, represented a significant advance in technology. These new teletherapy units allowed high-energy radiation to penetrate deeper into the body without damaging the overlying skin and soft tissues. Thus, higher absorbed marrow doses in RAD could be delivered than with previous equipment. The advent of this new teletherapy encouraged researchers to retest TBI on patients with radio-resistant cancers, even though prior TBI techniques with older X-ray therapy machines had failed. By the late 1960s, however, chemotherapy began to be recognized as more effective, and interest in TBI waned. During the 1970s, researchers explored the effectiveness of administering TBI without bone marrow transplant through multiple exposures at lower doses, that is, 10 to 30 rad, known as fractionated radiation, to achieve cumulative total body doses of 150 to 300 rad, rather than single exposures of an equivalent total body dose. They also focused much more extensively on partial body irradiation, because the risk of patient bone marrow failure was lower. Since the 1980s, TBI has again been used to treat certain widely disseminated radio-resistant carcinomas at doses as high as 1,575 rad in conjunction with effective bone marrow transplantation, which became routinely available in the late 1970s. TBI can cause acute health effects during the first six weeks following an acute single exposure. The type and severity of these effects depend, among other things, on the dose, the dose rate, and the individual's sensitivity to radiation. The most serious side effects seen during this period are related to radiation-induced depression of the bone marrow, which can cause a decrease in the number of circulating platelets and white blood cells, which in turn can result in small hemorrhages and infections, possibly leading to death. Moderate bone marrow depression results with doses of about 125 rad. The following table describes the general acute effects that are likely to occur to healthy persons from a single exposure. These effects can be exaggerated and prolonged for people who are ill or who have had prior radiation treatments. As with an ordinary diagnostic X-ray, the patient feels nothing during the radiation exposure itself. In addition, TBI, like most other forms of radiation exposure, can potentially have long-term effects, such as cancer induction. However, most patients who receive TBI do not live long enough to experience most long-term effects. Midline tissue dose of 50 to 100 rad. Symptoms, nausea, 
percentage, 5 to 30 percent. Time post-exposure, 3 to 20 hours. Midline tissue dose, 100 to 200 rad. Symptoms, nausea, 30 to 70 percent, within 4 to 30 hours. Vomiting, 20 to 50 percent, within 5 to 24 hours. Death, in less than 5 percent, within 5 to 6 weeks. Dose, 200 to 350 rad. Symptom, nausea, 70 to 90 percent, within 1 to 48 hours. Vomiting, in 50 to 80 percent, within 3 to 24 hours. Death, in 5 to 50 percent, within 4 to 6 weeks. Dose, 350 to 500 rad. Symptom, nausea, in 90 to 100 percent, within 1 to 72 hours. Vomiting, in 80 to 100 percent, within 3 to 24 hours. Death, in 50 to 99 percent, within 4 to 6 weeks. Dose, 550 to 750 rad. Symptom, death, in 100 percent, within 2 to 3 weeks. Early Use of TBI for Radio-Resistant Tumors The Manhattan Project Experiments on Patients and the Subsequent AEC Review In the early 1930s, researchers at Memorial Hospital in New York, a major cancer research center, now known as the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Institute, engaged in an extensive study on the medical effects of total body irradiation, as a part of this study, the researchers attempted to treat a few radio-resistant carcinomas. When they published their results in 1942, they noted that, except for transient relief of pain in a few cases, the results in generalized carcinoma cases were discouraging. The reason for this is quickly apparent. Carcinomas are much more radio-resistant than the lymphomatoid tumors, and by total body irradiation, the dose cannot be nearly large enough to alter these tumors appreciably. They cautioned that a cancer-killing dose will produce deleterious reactions in the bone marrow and general metabolism, which may prove lethal to the patient. The equipment used to deliver the TBI during this time was suboptimal, because most of the radiation was deposited in superficial structures such as the skin and other soft tissues. During World War II, Memorial Hospital was one of three medical institutions chosen by the Health Division of the Manhattan Project's Metallurgical Project to conduct TBI experiments in order to help understand the effects of radiation. The other two were the Chicago Tumor Institute and the University of California Hospital. All three studies focused on individuals with radio-resistant diseases. From the limited records that are currently available, it appears that these three studies achieved little, if any, medical benefit to the subjects. In addition, the interest of the military in these studies was classified and kept secret from the patients, in order not to reveal the ongoing atomic bomb project. The first experiment was carried out from 1942 to 1946 at the University of California Hospital in San Francisco, 
to study the effects of total body irradiation with X-rays of varying energy on hematologically normal individuals. Twenty-nine patients were treated with total dosages ranging from 100 to 300 R using a 250 kV machine. The investigators noted that the treatments were administered as part of the normal therapy of these patients, and reported that advantage was taken of the fact that patients were receiving such treatment by making numerous blood studies for the Manhattan Project. Little is known for this and the other two studies about the treatment of patients or the issue of patient consent. A number of the patients in the University of California study had rheumatoid arthritis, and the use of TBI for that disease was severely criticized after the war by the Advisory Committee for Biology and Medicine of the newly formed Atomic Energy Commission. See below. In 1948, Dr. Robert Stone, chief of the Manhattan Project's Metallurgical Laboratory Health Division, noted that although no signed consent was received from the patient, the treatment was explained to them by the physicians, and they, in full knowledge of the facts, accepted the treatments. At the same time, however, it was admitted that the fact that Manhattan District was interested in the effects of total body irradiation was kept a secret. A second Manhattan Project experiment was performed from December 1942 to August 1944 at Memorial Hospital in New York by one of the researchers who had previously written that they were discouraged by the use of TBI for radio-resistant cancers, Dr. L. F. Craver. Despite his earlier negative results, eight patients were given a total of 300 R using a 250 kV machine at various dose rates in order to yield some detectable effects on the blood count and to serve as a guide to the clinical tolerance for whole-body irradiation. The patients had to have metastatic cancer of such an extent and distribution as to render their cases totally unsuitable for any accepted method of surgical or radiological treatment, yet be in good enough general condition so that they might be expected not only to tolerate the exposure to 300 R of total body irradiation in a period of 10 to 30 days, but also to survive the combined effects of their disease and the irradiation for at least six months, in order that some conclusions might be drawn as to the later effects of the irradiation. The report on this experiment makes clear that the primary purpose of this TBI was to obtain data for the military. Dr. Craver essentially acknowledged that there was little prospect of actual medical benefit to the patients in light of the previous failure using the same procedure. A third TBI study involving 14 people was performed at the Chicago Tumor Clinic from March 1943 to November 1944. Doses up to 120R were given with a 250 kV machine. None of these individuals had radiosensitive cancers. The use of TBI was justified by the investigators because there were no known treatments for their illnesses, and therefore X-ray exposures that were given were as likely to benefit the patient as any other known type of treatment, or perhaps even more likely than any other. The study appears to be the only TBI study that included healthy subjects, 
three normals were each given three doses of 7R. After the war, Dr. Stone took on the task of editing an official history of the experiments done for the plutonium project. At one point he complained to Dr. Shields Warren, chief of the AEC's Division of Biology and Medicine, DBM, that declassifiers were withholding the report of the Chicago TBI experiment on grounds that its release would cause adverse publicity and even encourage litigation. Stone proposed to solve the problems by carefully rewording the report. The report would make clear that the patients were suffering from incurable illnesses, for which radiation was as good, if not better, than any other known treatment. Stone then proposed to deflect the likelihood of adverse publicity or litigation by deleting identifying information so that the patients could never connect themselves up with the report. The study was declassified and published in the form that Stone proposed. At about the same time, in the fall of 1948, Dr. Alan Gregg, chairman of the AEC's Advisory Committee for Biology and Medicine, ACBM, engaged Stone in an exchange regarding the Manhattan Project TBI experiment on the arthritic patients in the University of California Hospital. Stone, who by this time had returned to the staff of the UC Hospital, had requested funding to monitor these arthritic patients. Greg told Stone that, I think that I do not misrepresent the opinion of the Advisory Committee for Biology and Medicine in saying that we agree with those who believe the X-ray treatment of arthritic patients that you have been giving patients is not justified. Despite Dr. Gregg's concerns, the role of TBI in the treatment of benign autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis continues to be explored today. Gregg stated that the AEC had an obligation to provide a check on overly enthusiastic researchers. While admitting that a conservative consensus against certain treatments was not always correct, Gregg cautioned that there is plenty of experience that shows that some forms of therapy attract enthusiastic supporters only to be discarded later as unsafe or unjustified. In response, Stone acknowledged that the military's need for worker safety information during the war was a primary motivation for choosing patients with non-radiosensitive carcinomas and some benign disorders such as arthritis. At that time, I was confronted with the problem of building up the morale of the workers on the new atomic bomb project, many of whom were seriously worried about the effects of prolonged whole-body irradiation but he countered that he and the other researchers did believe that total body irradiation would be therapeutic. Moreover, Stone retorted, Gregg's statements threatened researcher and doctor freedom. Wittingly or otherwise, you have dictated how I should treat patients, even outside of the Atomic Energy Commission's supported activities. Stone's declaration marked a boundary that government officials, including Stone's fellow medical researchers, would not be eager to cross. End of section forty one. Recording by Maria Casper.